So tonight we're going to be talking about the issue of beauty. And um, I don't know if you've seen any of these Dove commercials. I think they're pretty awesome. Critique of beauty. Um, St. Augustine believed that beauty really drives us as human beings. In so many ways, what it means to be human is to be shaped by what you love. And that means that beauty is always important. It also means that when ideas of beauty get distorted, um, they become really destructive. The most wonderful gifts become the most destructive idols. And I think these Dove commercials are pretty profound critiques of beauty. Something is seriously wrong with the idea of beauty in our day and age. And I thought maybe we would watch this, what is it, about a minute and a half maybe a minute commercial as an introduction to this idea of beauty here tonight. So check it out. It's powerful, isn't it? It's a problem with the idea of beauty. And um, God has a lot to say about it. You know, we live in a world in which the concepts of beauty are often arbitrary and oppressive. I mean, it's so powerful that that one point where like 10 of them all together, one after the other, went through the average door. Right? Isn't that heartbreaking? And we can't just blame the advertisers. I know it's easy to do that. Um, it's a book that I really appreciate. It came out a number of years ago um, by Gene Kilborn about advertising. And um, I thought this was a pretty profound thing. I, I put this quote, but I'm going to pick up in the middle of it. Um, she says that advertising... It's not just that advertising is a problem. It's too easy to blame it on advertising. Here's what she says. Advertising constantly promotes the core belief of American culture that we can recreate ourselves, transform ourselves, transcend our circumstances, but with a twist. For generations, Americans believed this could be achieved if we worked hard enough. Today, the promise is that we can change our lives instantly, effortlessly, by winning the lottery, selecting the right mutual fund, having a fashion makeover, losing weight, having tighter abs, buying the right car or soft drink. It is this belief that such transformation is possible that drives us. This American belief that we can transform ourselves makes advertising images much more powerful than they otherwise would be. They tap into an often unseen but very powerful narrative that's deep at work in our culture and in our hearts. And it doesn't just affect girls. Um, if that, guys, if that doesn't break your heart too, you need to watch more of those videos. <laughs> um, because it's, it's huge. Now, so many people recognize the problem of beauty, but they don't know what to do about it. Um, choose beauty, I guess, is a, is a start. Um, but I don't know if that's enough. I, I think that, that that video is profound at pointing out the problem. Um, I, for me, one of the best parts is the way the peop most of the people that choose beautiful, it's because of their community, their mom, their friend. But you see how the friends and the community have to not just encourage, but even at times insist. And I think that's, that's pretty powerful. Um, but in our day, sometimes, you know, one of the ways we deal with the problem of beauty is to try to deconstruct the concept um, you guys remember the movie Shrek? And you remember the end of the movie, and it's this fascinating twist, right? Because the kiss doesn't transform him. 
into a shining, beautiful prince, it transforms her and says something about what is beautiful anyway, right? That's the idea of deconstructing beauty. Everything is ugly, therefore everything is beautiful. Their concepts should just be thrown out, and yet that doesn't really work for long. And I, I believe it's because we've been made to love something and find something beautiful and powerful. We were made to have our breath taken away by something. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, we do not merely want to see beauty, though God knows even that is beauty enough, but we want something else which we can hardly put into words to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. We can't get rid of the longing for beauty, and yet we can't secure it for ourselves either. Beauty fades. We know that. That's why our culture is so obsessed with youth and youth culture. But what does God have to offer? I want us to look at a passage tonight, Zechariah 3, that in many ways is one of the ugliest pictures in the Bible. But I think as we dig into it, we will see that it's really one of the most beautiful. So let's look at our passage, if we can. It's in Zechariah chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter. Now, it's a strange book, Zechariah. I've, I've often wondered if Dickens got some of his Christmas carol kind of idea about the ghost of Christmas past and Christmas future, because that's kind of the, the, the way Zechariah works. There are these angels that come and show him different visions, night visions, um, and, and so as it starts out here, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then he showed me, and the he is the angel, if you kind of you know, back up. But I'm not going to read chapter 2, just so you know the context. That's the context. This angel is showing him different visions, and some of them are pretty bizarre. Uh, Zechariah actually shows up a lot in the book of Revelation. So if you've ever thought the book of Revelation has all these kinds of weird images, Zechariah is where a lot of those weird images come from. So I thought we'd uh, dip into this a little bit because this passage... It's one of my absolute favorites. Let's read it together. It's in Zechariah. Sorry, you follow along. I'll read it. Zechariah chapter 3. Then he, the angel, showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand or a burning stick plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, to Joshua, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, this is Zechariah, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. And clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest. You and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign, or under the translation say, who are symbolic of things to come. Behold, I will bring my servant, 
the branch. For behold, that means look, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Let's pray briefly and then we'll dig into this. Lord, we do thank you that you use all kinds of pictures and images to get to our hearts. And we thank you for this one. Help us now to see the beauty in this ugly picture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me give you a little context for what this is about. It really is a shocking scene. Now, Zechariah understands what's going on here better than you and I uh, would understand it initially because he's part of this culture. But more importantly than that, Zechariah is not just a prophet. He is also a priest. And so he understands what priests are supposed to do in the Jewish religion, and he understands um, what should be going on in this scene, which is on the Day of Atonement. Now, the reason we know that is standing before the angel of the Lord, that is a reference to being inside the Holy of Holies. In the temple, there was a place that only the high priest could go, and only once a year. It was the Holy of Holies, and the high priest went there on that one day, the Day of Atonement, to offer a sacrifice for the sins of Israel as a people. And that's the context here. When it says that he's standing before the Lord, the Lord had a particular presence at the Ark of the Covenant that was in the Holy of Holies. That's the very throne room, if you will. And so that's what's going on, right? Zechariah understands that. But there, in the midst of the Holy of Holies, look who's there. Satan, the accuser. And he's there to accuse Joshua. And he has every right to do so. Because when you look at Joshua, what does it say? It says that he's covered in filthy clothes. He's, in, he's covered in excrement is really the Hebrew word. None of the translations say it exactly that way. But that's literally what it says. So he's standing there on the Day of Atonement, ministering on behalf of all Israel, offering the sacrifice, and yet rather than being clean, rather than being pure, he's covered in excrement, filthy clothes. Now, this is even more shocking, and it would have been shocking in a way to Zechariah that's hard for us to understand, but let me give you a little bit of the background of what happened on the Day of Atonement so you can understand how crazy this picture is. That no high priest would ever dream of standing before the Ark of the Covenant covered in excrement. And there were all kinds of rituals that the high priest went through, we know, um, from other Jewish writings. And um, Professor Ray Dillard, who's went on to be with the Lord, brought out a few of these, which I'll share with you. The first thing that the high priest would do, and they would rotate around among a group of priests who would be the high priest. Uh, there's a reference to that, actually, in the Gospel of John, um, when it says that, um, 
this, this one guy was high priest that year. They rotated around, okay? And if it was your turn to be high priest that year and enter into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, here's what would happen. First, you would be isolated for an entire week from your family before the big day. As a matter of fact, they had a special little apartment in the temple because one of the things that would make you unclean and ineligible to perform the duties on the Day of Atonement was if you came in touch or in contact with something unclean, like a dead body or all these various things. So you had to be isolated in this special apartment at the temple. You couldn't even go outside. The night before the Day of Atonement, you would pull an all-nighter with a handful of friends. And what would you do on that all-nighter? Well, you would pray. Your friends would pray with you encourage you, and you would practice the rituals over and over again so that you didn't mess up anything. At dawn on the Day of Atonement, you would begin the rituals. And the rituals would go out throughout the whole day. They actually would set up a bath behind a linen screen. And the high priest would bathe at least five times, somewhat in public, but behind the linen screen. The reason it was out there where everyone could see is because the people needed to know that the one who would represent them would be clean and spotless. And he would wash his hands and his feet at least 10 times. And he wore special clothes on the Day of Atonement as well. Every day, actually, the priests wore bright colored robes. The only day that they wore white was the Day of Atonement. So, on the Day of Atonement, you should be in clean, pure white, in keeping with God's promise that as he dealt with our sin, we would be white as snow. And that's, that's the background of this picture. And what Zachariah sees is crazy. The high priest, standing before God, covered in excrement. And see, it's not just about the high priest. Because if the high priest is not clean, and he can't perform his duties, then all of Israel is still wallowing in the filth of their sin. Then there's something even more shocking. And it's what God does. Even though this high priest is standing covered in excrement before the, high, the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant... Grace dominates this picture. And there's a number of ways that we see this. Beautiful pictures that I want to go through with you. The first is that grace reclothes us. It gives us new clothes. Notice this. The Lord silences the accuser. He rebukes him. The Lord rebuke you. But he takes away the basis for the accusation, doesn't he? He says, remove the filthy clothes. So... He doesn't just wink at sin. I hope you understand this or are beginning to understand this. Christianity never teaches that God just winks at sin or chooses to ignore it. The reason that the good news is good news is because God takes away the basis for the accusations against us. Colossians chapter 2 talks about this. It said that Jesus went to the cross, and as he went to the cross, he endured this scorn and this humiliation. But it says that 
He took the law that would condemn us and he nailed it to the cross. And when he did that, he disarmed the powers and the principalities because the basis for Satan's accusations of being able to say to you that you're a miserable piece of crap, the basis for that is removed. You don't have to argue with God if you're a Christian and say, oh, no, really, I mean well. No. What you need to argue with, with uh, Satan if he comes and tells you that, or what you need to argue with the voices in your head that tell you that, is no, the basis for the accusation has been removed. The law that stands opposed to me, that points out all the things that I've done and the ways I've failed to live up to the beauty that God made me for, have been dealt with. Grace reclothes us, takes away the filthy clothes, puts on new garments. This is why in Colossians chapter 3, Paul uses this imagery for what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that we have taken off the old self and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. You think about what does it mean to be a Christian? It means somebody who's taken off the old self, put on the new self, which is still being made perfect. And we live in the midst of that tension. The second thing we see is that the Lord cares for burning sticks that need to be snatched from the fire. And, and the way I think this, we could think of this is that grace not only reclothes us, but it reclaims us. Uh, what an image of vulnerability and weakness. Literally a stick that's in the fire burning. And God snatches it out. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord chooses those who are without hope, like a burning stick in a fire, not those who are choice. And his unmerited mercy changes everything. Grace reclaims us. And, and thus God says to Satan, how dare you? These are my people. These are my people. I know that they're covered in excrement. I'll deal with it. I know that they're like a burning stick in the fire about to be snuffed out. I've got it. I'm going to pull them out. I'm going to rescue them. You also see this picture of grace restores us. Restores us what? Back to a royal state. I hope you understand that what the Bible teaches about Adam and Eve is that they were royal. C.S. Lewis picks up on this in the Chronicles of Narnia, right? It's King Adam and Queen Eve, right? And, and, and that is, is what the Bible teaches. They were giving dominion over the creation as God's vice regents to rule on his behalf. And what you see here is that picture of the turban. The turban is not something that a priest would wear. And I think it's fascinating that as Zechariah is starting to see God's grace, he says, put a turban on his head. And the Lord says, yes, I'll do that. Because grace is not just about reclothing you, taking away the filth and giving you beautiful clothes. It's not just about snatching you out of the fire, but it's also about restoring dignity and honor and glory. And then grace astounds us. Look at verse 9. God says, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Now, you may not understand how astounding that is, but let me tell you, Zechariah certainly knew. Because at this point in Israel's history, 
They have been performing the sacrifices, including the Day of Atonement, for over a thousand years. Over a thousand years. And it wasn't just the Day of Atonement that happened. There were numerous sacrifices every day. So Zacharias looking at this, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're going to remove the sin of this land in a single day? We've been doing the sacrifices for a thousand years. How in the world can this happen? The book of Hebrews is fascinating. Um, in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, it says this, that built into the Old Testament religion, into the Old Testament sacrificial system, is this meaning, this message that should have been very clear. The animal sacrifices are not cleansing you from your sin. The reason that that was clear in the whole rituals is because you have to keep doing it over and over and over again. If you have to keep doing it over and over and over again, it's not really working. So the book of Hebrews says, rather than trusting in the blood of bulls and goats, what you need to understand is God was teaching that he would provide what was needed, but this wasn't it. Something bigger and better needed to be sacrificed. Sacrifice is needed. God's been going to teach him that for over a thousand years, but the animal sacrifices weren't it. Now, the Jews didn't quite get that, but the writer of the Hebrews says that was built in to the rituals, even though it was missed. And that's what's going on here. Thousand, a thousand years of sacrifices, but now, but now I'm going to end the need for any more sacrifices, God says, in a single day. Let the significance of that sink in. How can God make such a promise? How can God make such a promise? Well, as Paul says to the Corinthians, I love this, one of my favorite verses. All the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. That's the old King James, and I like that. They're yea and amen in Christ. Uh, modern translations put it this way. As many promises as God has made, they are all fulfilled in Christ. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So how do we see that? Well, it's here, isn't it? Verse 7. Verse 8, actually. Um, These men are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Now, there are some Old Testament prophecies that are pretty subtle as they point to Jesus. And then there are passages like this. Like, literally... The the Hebrew translated Joshua here is the word Yeshua. And I hope you understand that's literally the name Jesus. So it's it's not like there's some guy that's going to come way long time from now. No, Jesus is going to come. This is Jesus, Yeshua, the high priest. Who is the only high priest who ever dared to stand before God in the Holy of Holies, clothed, in filthy rags. You see, the book of Hebrews tells us that what Jesus did is he went to the true Holy of Holies, of which the temple Holy of Holies was just a picture. The the Bible says that Moses was able to lay out what the temple was supposed to look like because God gave him a picture, a vision of the true heavenly temple. That the earthly temple is just a picture, a copy of the true heavenly temple. And when Jesus died, 
He did so in the true heavenly temple. He's the only high priest who ever dared stand before God clothed in filthy rags. Jesus is the branch. He's the one who kept the Lord's commandments. He's the one who walked in his ways. And he's the one who had a final week of preparation. He had an all-night vigil, didn't he? In the garden. You remember what happened when he told his friends that he wanted them to stay awake with him and pray? The day before his big day, they kept falling asleep. He kept waking them up. I need you. Stay awake with me. Pray with me. They kept falling asleep. And then one of them betrayed him with a kiss. For him, it was not a night of encouragement. It was a night of beating, mocking, torture. He wore special clothes. His were not white linen. They were the mocking purple robe of a king. He wore a special hat, if you will. It was not a turban befitting the king that he was. It was a crown of thorns. And he had a public bath as he was spat upon. That was our high priest. And that event did what the law and the Old Testament sacrifices couldn't do after thousands of sacrifices. But this filthy, broken, bleeding one did in a single day. The only high priest who ever stood before God, covered in excrement, yours and mine, was Jesus. And God obliterated him. God destroyed him so that you could be clean and so that his people's sins could be wiped away in a single day. Let that picture dominate your heart, your fears, your anxiety. May his boldness give birth to your boldness. You can stand in his sight clean and beautiful because Jesus dared to stand in the presence of God covered in ugliness and filth. Brothers and sisters, we should never romanticize the cross. When I was your age, I read this essay by a guy named A.W. Tozer that I always loved about the old cross and the new cross. And he said this, in Roman times, people didn't wear crosses. Crosses wore men. And wearing, now you might be wearing a cross, and I don't mean to shame you or, make, you know, <laughs> look around, see everybody kind of covering it up. But, but seriously, it would, it would be like, you know, wearing an electric chair around your neck. Like somehow... That, that image has, has, has become romanticized. You know, a lot, of, a lot of Christians were really upset a number of years ago. Do you remember this, um, this photo, Piss Christ? Remember with the picture of Jesus on the cross in the jar of urine? And all the Christians got all upset about it. I don't know why, honestly, when you look at Zechariah chapter 3. Because that's what the cross is about. That's closer to what the cross is really about than wearing it around your neck like a little gold piece of jewelry. And everybody gets all upset about it. Did you see Slumdog Millionaire? Don't you love that scene where, for, for the autograph, he's willing to dive into the crap. And I hope that 
I hope that you will get your mind around this picture. If that guy was willing to go through excrement to get an autograph, what do you think of the Savior who takes on excrement to make us clean and beautiful in his sight? Now, let me just, a couple applications to this, these pictures here. And, and it comes at the end here. When it talks about these two kind of strange images, the stone and the, the vine and the fig tree. What's going on here? Well, here's what it's saying. This work that Yeshua the high priest will do that will cleanse the land of its sin in a single day, it brings a couple things that are worth pointing out. The first is security. Now, I don't have time to trace all of this, but let me just say this. The stone in verse 9 is the stone that's set in the plaque, which is set in the priest's headgear. And the eyes represent God looking at the stone, the engraved inscription, and everybody's like, what's it say? What's it say? It doesn't tell us what it says. But this imagery is picked up in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, it says that it's Christ's name that will be written on our foreheads. It's the symbol of taking on Christ's image, his beauty for ours. And it's an image of security because it's inscribed on a stone. And I don't know if you've ever inscribed something on a stone, but you don't just erase that. You don't just backspace that. The beauty that Christ gives you cannot be erased. And the church is the community that's to demonstrate to the watching world that in Christ you can have real beauty that can never perish, spoil, or fade because it's kept in heaven for you where you can't get at it to screw it up. That's why I love that passage we read for the call to worship in 1 Peter. So it'll be awesome for the girls for y'all to go through 1 Peter because that passage in chapter 1 is this amazing thing that you have a righteousness. Righteousness means beauty. Righteousness is not just forgiveness. Righteousness means that you're seen as beautiful in God's sight because you've done everything that he asked for from the heart. That's what it means to have the righteousness of Christ. And what Peter says is this righteousness is not literally on you in a way that you can deface it or mar it. And it's not the kind of righteousness that can perish, spoil, or fade because it's Christ's righteousness. And God has already declared his judgment about that righteousness when he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. When he was raised from the dead, the Bible says he was raised for our justification. That means to prove that the sacrifice was fully pleasing in God's sight. And thus Peter says, that righteousness, the righteousness, your beauty, is not anywhere where you can get at it. It's kept in heaven for you. And you can't get up there to mess it up. That's security. The beauty you have in Christ is secure. And let me tell you, that's what changed the world. Because, you know, I, I've been looking at this book about why would anybody become a Christian in the first three centuries? How do you explain the incredible growth of Christianity at a time when it brought persecution and death? And yet it grew like this incredible um, amount. How do you explain that? One of the explanations is that Christianity offered something that was not available or possible anywhere else. And it was the security that comes from grace. The only thing that can bring real security is grace. 
Because if what God thinks about you is based in any way upon what you do, then you have the possibility of screwing it up. And, and thus Christianity wouldn't be anything remarkable. But what Christianity teaches is that the sin of this land will be wiped away in a single day by something that Joshua the high priest does, not by something you do. The other thing that Christianity taught that was so remarkable was that you could have a relationship with a personal God. There's no other religion that taught that or teaches that. An intimate relationship with a personal God. And it's a relationship that could be secured because it was based on grace. Not upon how beautiful you were, not upon how good you were. And while you might think, well, that's kind of exclusive, it's... It's the kind of exclusion that welcomes the ugly, the traitors. The, the other kinds of religions are exclusive too, you understand. They're limited to the people who are beautiful and the people who perform. I'll take Christianity. Really, it's the only thing that brings the kind of security. You can have beauty that's discovered rather than earned. And that changes everything. You see, you can, never, you can never have this any other way. The sitting under the vine and the fig tree is an image as well that we need to see. It's an image of flourishing. It's the idea that God is going to restore not just individual souls and take them up to heaven to sit on a cloud all day. No, the image here is of a restored creation, flourishing with good things, and with so much of it that all of God's people will have plenty to share. The work of Jesus will bring healing, not just to individuals, not just to souls, but it will bring a flourishing creation abounding in good things. The restored beauty is not just for our personal consumption, you see. It's for sharing. And that's really how you should begin to think of it even now. Wherever you see restored beauty, how can you share it? See, we can never get rid of our longing for beauty. It's what we were made for. It's what God's committed to giving us in Jesus. It's what Jesus secured. And I, I love uh, these lines from this song by a guy named Thad Cockrell. I don't know if you know this song. His record, To Be Loved, is really one of my favorite records, and I highly commend it to you. He's the lead singer for Leagues, if you know that band. But his uh, solo work is really great, too. Um, he has this, rec this song called Beauty Has a Name. And I've always loved this. That's the heart of the gospel. Beauty has a name. He sings, wonder of all wonders, everything has changed. Ever since I met you, beauty has a name. Beauty has a name. It's Yeshua, the high priest covered in excrement. When our uh, beauty has been secured by Jesus, it sets us free to look for and to work for beauty all over the place because we no longer have to spend all our effort and time trying to make ourselves beautiful. And that's what the church should be. Again, you know, my wife's favorite part and now my favorite part after she pointed out to me that Dove commercial is the importance of community. We need other voices speaking truth to us. I love when the mom pulls the daughter through the beautiful door. And again, most of the people left to themselves don't have the courage to go through the beautiful door. And I bet that's true of people here tonight. It's true of me. But what would it look for, like for us to grow into the kind of community that encourages, 
even insists when needed for each other to look to the true beauty, the secure beauty that we have in Christ. Let your heart be warmed by this picture. And let's sing this doxology. Let's uh, stand together.